internet, I recently entered, I have to confess, the dark and murky world of quilt making. Thousands and thousands of web pages giving information on all kinds of strange and obscure things. I actually hadn't realized how so many people use quilt making to tell their story. They'll design and they'll make a quilt square that illustrates a particular episode of their lives. Mind you, if you're looking on screen, I, I was trying to make out what sort of story they were trying to tell, that top left-hand picture. Uh, but this is what people do. So they get their uh, quilt square that's told a particular episode of their lives, and then they will stitch those quilt squares together, and so gradually uh, they form the tapestry of their life. And as I was researching this vital subject, I also became aware of how important it is to stitch these squares carefully together. The stitching itself must complement the story that's being told. And the book of Genesis is like a glorious quilt. Moses, under the inspiration of God, takes significant episodes in the early history of the world and he puts them together to form an amazing tapestry that reveals something of the wonder and the character and the purposes of God. And tonight in our studies of Genesis, as we've been working our way through, we come to chapter 24. It is the longest chapter in the book, in Genesis. But... Before we get into it, we need to stand back and look at how it fits into the tapestry. Have a look at the stitching. Notice how chapter 23 is joined to chapter 24. And then notice how chapter 24 links into chapter 25. We need to see this, this continuity. You see, in Genesis 23, Abraham bought some land in Canaan to bury his wife, Sarah. Now, this was significant. He wasn't going to bury her in the old country. He'd come from up north, outside of Canaan. But no, he was going to take his stand upon the promises of God. He knew that God had promised his descendants that land. They'd moved away from the old land. They'd moved to the new land. God had said, I'm going to give that land to you one day. And so he buried Sarah there in anticipation. And now in chapter 24, that same theme continues. Abraham wants to get a wife for his son, but he won't let Isaac go back to the old country. No, uh, he has got to get a wife from there who will come back to the new land that God has Promise. So you see how chapter 24 is neatly stitched into chapter 23. But, but then notice, as we're just looking at this big overview, how a transition is then made in chapter 24. It begins with the servant pledging his allegiance to his master Abraham. And on numerous occasions throughout this long chapter, there are references to his master Abraham. 
But then, at the end of the chapter, there is a significant change. Now, spoiler alert here, I'm going to give away how the story works out, though I suspect you could have worked it out yourself. We read this, Genesis 24, 64 to 65. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So at the end of chapter 24, it's being neatly stitched on to chapter 25, which features the death of Abraham and the work of Isaac. We're going to look at that next Sunday evening. This continuity, the servant who starts off by saying, Abraham is my master. As we get to the end of the chapter, he is saying, no, 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 Isaac is my master. It is quite brilliant. It is quite beautiful the way the stitching goes. One quilt scene joining the next. But before we get into the heart of this account, it's worth saying a few things by way of introduction. Firstly, biography. See, the central figure throughout these 64 verses is Abraham's servant. He comes over as a remarkably likable character, actually, but we know very little about him. Verse 2 tells us that he was the chief servant or the senior servant in Abraham's household, which could also mean that he was the oldest servant. Now, some commentators have suggested that this could well be a guy called Eleazar, who was mentioned back in chapter 15, verse Now, at that time, uh, 15 verse 2, it was probably about 50 years previously. And at that time, Eleazar stood to inherit all Abraham's very considerable estate. Because that was the custom at that time for a childless couple. Strangely, it would go to uh, the chief servant. But with the birth of Isaac, all that had changed. Now, if this is the same man in chapter 24, he's acting actually with remarkable grace for the benefit of the one who took his inheritance. There's no trace of bitterness. There is just unswerving love and loyalty. So biography, trying to understand a little bit about this servant. Secondly, geography. Abraham sent his servant on a journey of about 450 miles back to northwestern Mesopotamia. Don't, yeah, probably we can see enough. Probably uh, where they were would be in a place called Hebron. So Shechem, probably there, named on the map, would be the closest place to where they were. And uh, the uh, journey would have been to the north, going around uh, the fertile crescent to that place you see, or near that place uh, of Haran. You see, he, he actually arrived in that northwestern corner of Mesopotamia, in a town where Nahor, Abraham's brother, had lived, which was about 25 miles from the city of Haran. And just a tiny detail, it was Haran where Abraham had initially set off to go to the promised land of Canaan. And that journey would have taken probably a couple of months for the servant to make. So geography. Now thirdly, sociology. Uh, We've already noted in our studies how society in those days gave greater prominence to the position of the brother. 
That was strangely the position of authority in those days. That's why, for example, Abraham described himself as Sarah's brother when he was in trouble rather than her husband. No, it, it sounds really strange to us now, you know, that a brother would have the senior position, but that's how this society operated. It was not the father, it was not the husband, it was the brother who was the most senior in that particular society. And actually, this also explains why Laban is so prominent in the discussions about Rebecca. Now, we didn't read all of that. It's a very long chapter. It would have taken us about 20 minutes to have done so. Uh, but, but Laban, Rebecca's brother, is the lead character here. Her dad, Bethuel, is hardly mentioned. It's Laban as the brother, the senior authority figure, who is taking the lead here. Uh, it's actually Moses' way of introducing us to a character who's going to feature more prominently later in the tapestry. Just remember that name, Laban. It's going to come up again. And indeed, we see from Laban's reaction to the gifts that Abraham's servant offered that he was a man to whom wealth was very important. And this will also play an important part later. So just try and store that away because we will be coming back to that on some future evening. But when we get into the main part of this chapter, we see that its theme is about finding a wife for Isaac. And so clearly, that must be where we pay most attention this evening. But we've got to be careful. We mustn't read too much into this passage. We can't assume that this is telling us that ancient betrothal customs should be the norm for us today. We've got to be very careful to distinguish between time-dated cultural practices and the timeless principles of God's word. What we have to do is let scripture interpret scripture. It is God's word that we are about here. I also need to be very careful as I bring this subject before you this evening. Some of you are already married. Some of you are separated. Some of you are divorced and some of you are widowed. And I realize this subject can cause emotional pain for many reasons. Some of you have been given the gift of singleness. In other words, you don't feel that God is calling you to marry someone. You think that that's how, that's the station in life that God has called you to. Look, I don't want you to feel picked on as we deal with this subject of finding a partner. I don't want you to feel like a leper in this congregation because you are a single person and have determined before God that is what God is calling you to do. don't want you to feel, oh, I'm an outsider here. We love you. We rejoice in you. We welcome you. But some of you here are single. And you do think about this subject. And you know that it's God's common will for you that you should get married. And, and, and you may be here and you may feel keenly the lack of a partner. And so it's very good for us when the subject arises in the course of our expository studies that we should take a look at what God's word says 
and seek to apply it in principled and practical ways. So let's try to see what principles emerge from this chapter. And we're going to do it in a couple of ways. My first head is this, what to look for in a partner. What to look for in a partner. I'm going to say three things under this particular heading. Firstly, there is one essential principle. It is this, our partner must share our faith. And I don't just mean be sympathetic towards it or have some vague connection with it. I mean that if you are a born-again child of God, you must look for a born-again child of God. No doubt there were many beautiful and rich Canaanite women. But Abraham was adamant that his son should marry someone who shared the same heritage. He was aware that those notoriously immoral tribes would draw his son's heart away from the living God. Uh, we, we saw this in chapter 24, verses 3 to 4, where Abraham is speaking to the servant. He said, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. And it's clear from verse 50 that Rebekah's family were not only connected to Abraham by blood, but this family also shared his knowledge of the Lord Jehovah, of Yahweh, the living God. For example, verses 50 to 51. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. Now, if you're looking at the, your Bible, you'll see this is capital letters, L-O-R-D. When they do that, it means they are using that special name for Jehovah, Yahweh. This is from Yahweh. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son. As the Lord, as Yahweh has directed. And this is no isolated teaching. The Old Testament is full of warnings about intermarrying with those who do not know the living God. For example, Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 to 4. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Or 1 Kings 11, we read about Solomon. First four verses. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And in the New Testament, the same theme is picked up for those who belong to the family of faith. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must 
belong to the Lord. A believer marries a believer. Or go into 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 15, where Paul writes, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He is using the image of a formal relationship. So clearly, marriage would be at the front of one of these formal relationships. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So let's be absolutely clear. There's no way around this. A believer must marry a believer. To do otherwise would be to go against God's revealed will. That's why in this church, we will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian. How can we ask God's blessing on something that he has expressly forbidden? So we need to understand this. One essential principle. But secondly, there is one qualifying feature. One qualifying feature here. And that is that they should be someone whose character is godly and gracious. Did you notice the first thing that the servant looks for? He wants to find a woman of good character. And so he sets a test. It's there in verses 13 to 14. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Well, actually, this was no easy task, what the servant was suggesting. Uh, we've already been told that the servant had 10 camels with him. Could I just say in passing, maybe, I don't know if any of you have heard there's an argument that this is uh, anachronistic, that there were no camels at that time, and clearly this is wrong. Uh, just, that's been blown out of the water in recent days by modern scholarship and research. Uh, there, there, there seems certainly to have been camels uh, at this time. And on average, each camel would drink 25 gallons of water. So that means drawing out of the well about 250 gallons of water, or if you want it in new money, it's over 1,000 liters or over 2,000 pints. And the wonderful thing about Rebecca was despite the size of the task, this was precisely what she offered to do. It's there in verses 19 to 21. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And could I say this? If you want to find out whether a guy or a girl is suitable for you, you need to take some time checking them out. And I mean by that, not what they look like, but what they do. So that you can get some sort of insight into their character. Listen to Paul's instructions to women. They're in 1 Timothy 2. 
verses 9 to 10. He says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Of course, actually, if you're on the lookout for such a person, just remember they may be on the lookout for you. And your life and your actions must demonstrate a godly character. There's no point marrying a godly person if you're not godly yourself. So one qualifying feature is to do with character. But then thirdly, I notice there's one desirable bonus. One desirable bonus. And that's if they're attractive. Uh, you see, that wasn't on the servant's agenda. It was just one of those blessings thrown in by a gracious God. But we are told this about Rebecca, uh, verse 16. The girl was very beautiful. A virgin, no man had ever lain with her. In fact, this is the one and only reference to Rebecca's beauty. And it reveals something of the priorities that we should have. In fact, the Bible is clear that inward character is far more important than outward beauty. Proverbs 11.22 Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Or 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So, look, I, I want to ask you a question. Do you spend as much time in the Bible and prayer as you do in fixing your hair and following your beauty routine? And I want to ask the women the same question as well. You see, we live in such a superficial society and we've been conned by its false grasp of values. And when it comes to relationships, it's quite possible that Christians follow the skewed priorities of the world. They put beauty first, character second, and then way down the line, they consider core values. But that's not how it should be. Get your priorities right, and you'll be blessed in your choice of marriage partner. So what to look for in a partner? But the second thing we're going to look at is how to look for a partner. How to look for a partner. Firstly, seek the help of God. Seek the help of God. Because on three occasions, the servant prays to God. The first thing he did on arriving at his destination was to pray. And when he discovers Rebecca's family line, he stops to pray and praise God. And, and finally, he prays, thanking God for the success of his mission. Prayer seems to be an integral part of how he operates. Now, in itself, this is quite remarkable. 
You see, it was generally assumed that a different God ruled over different areas of land and life. But even though he's in a country different from his own, he's conscious that the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, is with him. And regularly he raises his voice in prayer. Now, it should go without saying that the most important thing anyone can do when looking for a partner is to seek God in prayer. And yet, strangely, this seems to be, at times, the very last thing that's considered. So I want to ask those here this evening who are looking for a partner or at least a a conscious that in the future they might well marry, are you praying now about that partner? Does this form a regular part of your prayer life? It should be. If if you're saying, yeah, I could could well be married in in the future, I'd love to have a, a partner, pray. Are you praying about it? Are you praying now? Lord, Lord, show me, make me the person I should be and, and Lord, direct me to uh, a godly person, godly partner. So seek the help of God. Secondly, seek the wisdom of friends. You see, in our individualistic Western society, we find the idea of arranged marriages so strange. You know, if we have friends and they said, well, my, my marriage was arranged for me, we go, wow, that's pretty weird. You know, it's love here. And yet, our divorce rate is so high. Whereas in the rest of the world, arranged marriages are so common. Now, look, I'm, not, I'm certainly not advocating that this is God's plan for all marriages. Certainly not, because the Bible itself isn't explicit about this. But what is clear is that wise and godly advice can play a significant and helpful role when it comes to looking for a partner. You see, just as Abraham had a good idea as to what would be right for Isaac, and he gave instructions to his servant to that end, it's not inappropriate to seek the advice of mature, godly Christians who we trust. They may well see things that we miss. So always be willing to ask for their advice and discernment. Seek the wisdom of friends. Thirdly, seek the confirmation of circumstances. You see, Abraham's servant was very conscious of the fact that God is in control of all the situations we face. And therefore, he was expecting to see God at work. And it transpired, when it transpired that the girl who fitted the bill in response to his prayer was none other than Nahor's granddaughter, then it became apparent to all that this was of God. Verses 50 to 51, Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed circumstances, the confirmation of circumstances. And then fourthly, seek the courage of convictions. It can sound so 
neat and easy to talk about these principles of how to find a partner as if there is some sort of mathematical formula that will yield the correct answer. If you've come here this evening hoping that somehow you're just going to write something down, tick a few boxes and, and, and you'll know it doesn't work like that. That's not how it works in real life. It's not just about our head, it's actually about our heart. Our emotions get involved. Deep needs are being stirred. Those funny romantic feelings can hit us in the pit of the stomach. And these things have a momentum of their own. Friends, we need the strength of our convictions. If things are moving too fast in the wrong direction, we need the courage to stop. That's what Abraham's servant anticipated in verse 5. He said, what should he do if he found the right woman, but she was unwilling to return to Canaan? And there in verses 5 to 6, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. Stop. So be very careful. Although your heart may be burning with love, you need to keep a cool head. You need to make sure that the pace of events doesn't bounce you into actions that you'll later regret. You need to make sure that you are keeping God's word and God's will central. And the result of it all, the result of seeking a partner God's way, let's close by hearing some of the wisdom observations that are recorded in Proverbs. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 11, a wife of noble character who can find she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. And some of us here are very rich men. But look, could I just say this? I, I was going through my notes this afternoon, and I came to the end of them, I came to this, and I thought, I still, I think, need to say something else. So forgive me, but I, I just want to say some things. Uh, directly into this. I want to say this, marriage isn't everything. It will not and it cannot fix anyone. Despite all its joys, marriage between two sinners, which is what any marriage is, it amplifies our faults and is used by God in our sanctification. And every married couple here will go, Amen, that is true. 
because it exposes our own hearts in ways that other stuff just doesn't. And in marriage, I see how far short I fall of the man I should be to Kath, my wife. But God, in his grace and goodness, uses it for our sanctification. Marriage is actually used to get us ready for heaven. Marriage is used to make us more like Jesus because actually it exposes our hearts and reveals our failings. Marriage cannot fix anyone. And if you're here and you think everything will just be great if I get married, it will not be. It will not be. Could I say this? If you get married to the wrong person, it will not bless you. I think I also have to say this. Our identity and worth is found not in being a married person, but in being in Jesus. He is the one who gives meaning. He's the one who gives joy. He's the one who gives hope above all. It is in Jesus that we have our identity. Our identity is not that, hey, I'm a married person or I'm a single person or I'm a divorced person or I'm a heterosexual, or I'm subject to same-sex attractions. Our identity is not found in these things. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your identity is found in Jesus. He is the one who gives you that peace and joy and hope. Now, one would pray that in God's goodness, a relationship will help that and contribute to that blessing and joy and peace, but... It is not the primary source of those things. Our identity and worth is found in Jesus. Whoever you are here this evening, if you are in Jesus, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, that gives you your identity. That is who you are above anything else. third thing I think I need to say is this. There is a temptation to church hop until you find a partner. That's often the sort of perceived wisdom. You come to a church and you sort of check them out. Anyone here who's really nice, you know, maybe stay for six months, nothing works out, go to another church, check out the next bunch there. Look, I know that happens, guys. I know that's a way of thinking. So, you know, let's, let's cut out some of the rubbish excuses we use. The temptation is to church hop. But could I say don't do that? And I say that carefully, but don't do that. You see, the local church family is here to support you. Now, we fail you at times, and I apologize for that. If you're here and you're single and you're hurting, you should get the love and support of the church family here at Charlotte Chapel. And we should be looking out for you and supporting you and loving you and encouraging you and helping you. And we may not always do that. I'm really sorry if that's the case. Because the church family should be here for you. And can I also say, within the context of a church family, you can see healthy marriages. And that's a good thing. Oh, that's, 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 that's what maybe I should be aspiring to. They, they seem to have it together. And as well as seeing healthy marriages that you want to maybe model your life on, you, maybe you also get to know people well so that you see messy marriages. And you see how messy marriages, people in messy marriages work at it for the glory of God. Actually, virtually every marriage is a messy marriage in one way or another. But as you stay in the church family, you see, oh, 
That's how they do it. That's how they cope with the differences and the disagreements. The last word I'll say to you is this. Above a partner, you need Jesus. Above a partner, you need Jesus. He's the one who brings that hope and joy. A partner, great. Spouse, great. Probably. Maybe. But above a partner, you need Jesus. He's the one who fills the ache in our souls. He's the one who fills the emptiness. He's the one who fills that, fills that sense of uh, lack that we have. We just feel disconnected. Where does that connection come from? It comes from going to the living God who is our creator and sustainer of all things. You need Jesus. Now, that may sound such a quick throwaway comment. But you may be here and you may have been thinking about these things. And you may have been so disappointed and hurt in the past. And you may not be a follower of Jesus. And I just want to say to you, forgive me, but I've got to say to you, Jesus is the answer. I know that sounds so cliched and trite, but actually it is so true. <laughs> it is in Jesus that we find our joy and our peace and our identification. And we know in Jesus the forgiveness of sins. We know in Jesus he's the one who takes our guilt away. You may have failed so many times in attempted relationships. You may have slept around and it may have been unhelpful and you feel dirty and guilty. But can I tell you this? Jesus Christ is the one who loves to take sinners and he forgives sins and he makes people clean. And he, the Bible says if anyone is in Christ they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It is in Jesus that you get your identity and joy. Seek him. And if you want to ask more about knowing Jesus, then look, they're going to be folks, uh, our prayer team at the end, they're going to be here. They'd love to share with you. There's going to be folks at the Connect Corner, which is on the left-hand side, the sofas that are out there. Go and talk to them. I'll be in the lobby as well. Come and talk to us about these things. And maybe your heart is bursting and busting because of some of the things we've been talking about. Maybe it's like I've taken a knife to some scar tissue and opened it up. I apologize. The intention was never to hurt, but rather to point you to the truth that heals. But maybe it would help if you talk to some folks. And there are some really godly folks. And there are some really godly couples here. And they'd love to help you. And we'd love to point you in their direction. So don't go running off hurt. Come to us. Talk with us. Pray with us. And we're going to pray right now. Father, we...